welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. There are very few people I know who embody the integration of sharply distinct, perhaps even opposing qualities. Wendy Hirschberg is one of them. Both artist, a sculptor to be specific, and a business professional, she brings together two very different worlds and value systems. I have watched her move between those worlds seamlessly, and by applying her artistic sensibilities to her work and vice versa, she adds depth and value to both. We can all learn a lot from the ease with which she integrates disparate parts. Here is my conversation with Wendy. So, Wendy, what do you do? Well, I have to answer as a double answer. So, I know you through my work in diversity, and I actually did the math. I've been doing work in diversity for over 40 years. Oh. And second answer is that I have a master's in sculpture, but I actually started making sculpture when I was three. So that math added up to 63 years. <laughs> so I, what I concluded is that once I commit to something, I really jump in and stick with it. I guess that was my conclusion there. But but what a cool, I mean, what, what cool two sides, right? I mean, sculpture, an artistic pursuit, and then DE&I, which I guess to some degree and sometimes also qualifies as an artistic pursuit. <laughs> but, right, true. But maybe how uh, many DEI people don't perceive it that way. And and you have some history to look back on <laughs> in both <laughs> fields. <laughs> so how, you know, I mean, I'm I'm just wondering, first of all, I mean, it's it's fascinating, and I've always told you that. I, I guess it's fascinating to find someone who has these two sides to them. And I know that you've done DEI work in a rather serious, conservative you know, organizational environment as well. And and I'm just wondering how, I don't even know how to get into this, but how did you combine both? Or did you need to separate those two sides? What do they have in common? Yeah, I can, I can definitely say I spent some time thinking about it. And actually, thanks to knowing you, I spent more time thinking about why I ended up in diversity uh, work than I had, you know, for many years. So I've known mm. you for a long time, but it took me a long time to sort of say, how did this happen <laughs> that I ended up in this career? So I think I, I focus, you know, maybe more on the commonalities and thinking about doing this um, because to me, that was the harder part. On the, on the surface, you know, I worked often three days a week, long hours, you know, and two days in my studio, three days in the work environment. And, mm. you know, the superficial thing is I had to remember what day it was to figure out whether I was, you know, going to be wearing my jeans or a suit, you know, basically, <laughs> especially in the beginning. I was like, okay, I got to get used to this wardrobe change. But <laughs> over time, you know, and, and certainly years into um, doing this work, I, I did start to see that there was a connection. And what was the connection from my perspective is that as an artist for most of my life making sculpture 
I used collage technique. So three-dimensional, but sort of putting together disparate materials, right? And they had to stand up, you know, they had to defy gravity. They had to hang together. So they had to have some sort of integration, you know, of disparate parts. I also, you know, clearly as an artist was trying to express an idea through a visual language. Mm-hmm. As a diversity inclusion professional, especially given my educational background being heavily on the art side, I kind of realized over time that I was really like more like you, honestly, in some ways, in that I felt like I was getting an honorary degree in cultural anthropology. Because <laughs> what I was trying to do was listen to people um, carefully enough to understand both what the experiences people were having in work environments that I was exposed to, and then what was actually going on within the business itself. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it was really critical to understand actually the business model that I was working within so that I could determine what might be causing the inequities and the exclusionary practices. Because a lot of times, you know, what's written down or what you can see on the surface isn't actually what's really experienced by the people working there. Right. Yeah. So I I essentially was collecting information from many sources and collaging it together is sort of what I realized. It really (laughs) wasn't totally different, even though I wore different clothes. (laughs) So um, that was the thing I I sort of landed on. I mean, I wonder sometimes, and I, I mean... Ever since you shared that with me, in in you know, I've I've been wondering, um, and we've had a number of conversations about what is the benefit of an artistic sensibilities ability in doing the ENI work, and I mean, also watching you work, I've always had a feeling that you it was the same sensibility, you mm-hmm. know, because I mean, so so much of I mean, an organization is a structure as well. Right, it, of sorts. It's a. Right. It is just a different form of a structure, and and the integration of disparate parts could be also a definition of inclusiveness. Right. Exactly. I think for me, um, what probably took me a little bit of time was, you know, really understanding the business practices. You know, and I think more naturally, I was I was always interested in people's experiences and that part you know, was, I could talk a little bit about, you know, why did people trust me? You know, I've thought about like, why did these people trust me? You know, especially as a white woman, you know, I don't know. I just found it really interesting that I was able to establish trust. Even when I was working just with mostly white men on gender issues, the men were trusting me with their stories. So I I, I did pause and think like, why are all these people trusting oh. me with this? So that took me some time to think through. But on the more challenging side for me was, you know, I had to be kind of objective and looking at the business, you know, because I didn't, it's not like I came in with an MBA and could say, okay, I understand this kind of business runs like this, this, and this. I basically was like totally naive, honestly, in the very beginning. And I was like, okay, let me just figure this place out. So I kind of pieced it together really um, with a lot of intuition and listening and observation, but it, it, it turned out to me to really position me well to be an influencer because I'm not a stupid person. I got like kind of to the core of some of the really bizarre aspects of the business. And there are contradictions in a lot of companies 
Mm-hmm. They think they're running the business in this extremely logical fashion, but you know, you can find these moments where they're like completely blind to something. You know, I'll give an example. So in the organization where I spend a lot of time, there were, you know, expectations that individuals would learn how to sell work. But the system that was provided to the individuals was one where time was money. It was a billable hours environment. So if you weren't going to get credit for selling the work, you had to actually kind of learn that you had to break certain rules about how you were spending your time to be successful. So for people who were not going to get tipped off to that little secret in unwritten aspect, it was really difficult to figure out how to become successful. And partly because oftentimes people who don't get tipped off to what's really going on have differences of identity to the insider groups, you know, using your language, then it becomes this appearance of conscious bias, let's say, in the system, mm-hmm. you know where really often it's this unconscious pattern that's just invisible to a lot of the leaders. And, um, you know, so it's things, I think the fact that I was a very intuitive person as an artist was an asset because I didn't have like preconceived ideas about business. And I also candidly would say, maybe I was brought up to be a bit less respectful of authority figures than many people are <laughs> so um so you know it, the fact that i would be sure i had sort of a, an opinion about the business i didn't feel embarrassed to say or shy to say to an executive explain this why does this make any sense you know if people mm. are expected to sell and you're not helping them understand that that's going to take time like what you know like i would basically tell the story back to them and i would challenge them and i would make jokes about the fact that you know, I thought they were kind of um, in trouble if a person with my background could figure this out, you know. So I stayed with the business people on the business side. And partly I did that because I actually think a lot of people attracted to business, especially in the years that I've been in this field, you know, are attracted because they want to make money. They want to have status. They want to advance. They want, you know, a certain kind of influence or whatever. Things that actually, honestly, as an artist, don't really attract me all that much. Mm. But I had to develop an acceptance of, you know, this is really what makes these folks tick. And I have respect for them because in many cases, they were like, all of them, including the executives, were really pretty much self-made successes. And, you know, I developed a, a value for what they valued and was able to just say, you know, they didn't come to work to actually have their values challenged by somebody like me. That wasn't their motivation. If I didn't learn how to speak their language, why should I expect them to care about mine? Yeah. You know? So I think those were those were things that I learned kind of slowly, but I think in the later part of my career, I felt really confident that I was, you know, really being a contributor there. What, what what you're also saying, I mean, not in those words, this, this, you know, but that you, first of all, you were a an, an non-threatening um, outsider on the inside, right? If your motivational profile, you were not trying to compete, mm-hmm. and maybe that you didn't come in with an MBA was an asset, right? It alerted you to things that an MBA may not know this, actually. 
and you weren't necessarily blinded by the same motivations that you were seen as a threat necessarily. Right. Plus, I think sometimes people love explaining their world to other people. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're not, and especially when somebody isn't threatening. Right. I, I do agree. I mean, I did think that was, you know, one of, you know, I don't have a loud voice even, you know, so I think that helped me, um, especially when my name would appear in beginning on all these gender related, you know, semi-threatening messages they were getting. My name was on all of them. So they'd, you know, I'd always go into these meetings, these one-on-ones thinking like, oh God, this guy's gotten like all these messages where my name's plastered all over, he's never going to want to tell me stuff. But in a very short order, they would, you know. So you're right. I think I really wasn't a threatening presence. Yeah. I mean, since since you laid out these two sides to you, right, the art and the, the DE&I side in a, in, a, in a corporate kind of business context, maybe we need to have, like, go down one strand, come back and go down the other strand a little bit. But I'm, I'm just curious, when you look back at the DE&I, journey and and evolution what is the most impactful or important insight from doing DEI work well i think actually it's what i'm what i've been talking about honestly i think that I, I do think that people in the field sometimes are a little bit tempted to proselytize in a sense to sort of have you know probably values that are completely matched to mostly what i believe personally mm. but i i think that in order to really be impactful, you have to go beyond that because of what I was saying. It, it's not a, it's not a typical motivation to join, you know, an organization with, a, you know, that's really about successful financial results. You know, it just it it's not. You know, I used to joke around in my career saying, you know, many of the people I work with chose math over English many years ago. They don't <laughs> like a lot of words. Yes. They really, numbers, like numbers were like music to their ears, you know, and words were kind of like dissonant sounds, you know. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, it's that, you know, kind of a, a kind of respect for differences, even in that regard, like, I was I was a very different person to your point in this environment that I spent a lot of time in and in years since I'm often very different than the companies I've advised or even when I was mm-hmm. working in that organization I worked I did I was given as a free resource to tons of other companies so I would always try to demonstrate a certain kind of respect for who I was talking to as opposed to you know maybe thinking like a teacher is sort of how I put it yeah. you know, I think that it's really critical to, you know, not just assume good intentions necessarily, but really listen carefully to what matters to the person you're talking to. Yeah. And, you know, you have to connect on some level to begin with about something that really does matter to them initially. And then, you know, you become an influencer if you understand where they're coming from. I think it's so important. And I, and I think or I observe that oftentimes that's where the initial turnoff comes. You know, one of the things that I used to notice when go working with with new organizations is like the conversations about who gets it. Exactly. Right? You know, these people. I mean, over here, this person doesn't get it. And then, but as soon as you fall trapped to this kind of thinking, who gets it and who doesn't, you're actually kind of othering those that don't get it, right? And you're treating them differently because mentally you've tagged them and there is an air of superiority that that doesn't connect. 
No, I actually have coached people along those. I mean, very senior top level executive on that exact topic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like don't say that to, you know, like if you have, sometimes you'll see male executives who really embrace this stuff, take that attitude on and humiliate other men who are yeah. Oh, yeah. somewhere along the journey. And that's like a disaster, you know? Well, welcome and, to masculinity 101. Yeah. there you go yeah that was actually probably another thing i learned more about is how incredibly you know actively inclined to sort of insult each other some of the male executives were from you know in front of hundreds of people even at times that was an astounding learning i think growing up with maybe a female dominated household made me a little naive about that It's interesting how these backgrounds come back. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I know that we could probably spend hours just talking about DE&I and what that takes, but I'd love to come back and and focus on the art side for a moment, right? Just like when you think, what is from that artistic sensibility, what what was most important for you, actually? And I guess I'm always curious how how one in your career, if I'm imagining you in that fictitious week, you know, some days in a suit and <laughs> and other, you know, dressed up and, and other days in jeans in your studio, how did one world influence the other or did you did you build kind of a wall there? Uh, initially, I would say some of my motivation was to be in a work environment that wasn't pretending it wasn't um, a marketplace. Like at the time I joined, you know, in 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 a more corporate environment because I started in the nonprofit sector um, in a women's organization, Catalyst, for many years. And then being in a corporate setting, at first I was actually thinking that it might help me be more successful as an artist, honestly, because I thought I'll go into this company setting where I have a certain amount of concern and insight, but I don't feel like my ego is like on the line in the way I did feel at that time as an artist. So I'll develop these skills there that I can hopefully cross back over and make me feel more comfortable in the art world, which was becoming more and more obviously a marketplace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an interesting, you know, trans- yeah, that was an initial take. Um, I would say, you know, as an artist, I kind of preferred to be really free to do whatever I wanted to do. And that, you know, was helpful to me to separate my earning a living from being an artist. So Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of purposeful also. Like, okay, if I don't have to really, you know, have constraints on this part of my life, I'll just be happy as I can be. Um, you know, because that was, you know, as an artist, I wanted to just be totally, you know, just free to do what yeah. I want to. So in other words, the, the corporate job or the nonprofit job before that helped you protect your sandbox from, you know, from from being encroached upon from the need to, you know, sustain it. <laughs> right, exactly. I think that was part of it. Um, I mean, I guess as a as a young person growing up with a kind of unusual combination of parents, my my mother was an artist, you know, and I came home from school and 
you know, as a little kid, my mother smelled of turpentine, which I sort of thought was that's mom's perfume, you know, and she, was, she was painting, you know, and my dad was, well, he was an electrical engineer and working in actually space and defense plants, which I was kind of not so happy with for certain years. On the other hand, my dad was like the romantic, you know, he married my mother against the wishes of his family. She was from a poor family and bohemian, and they were not like too excited about a lot of things about my mom. And my father thought she was phenomenal, you know, and this artist. And so he was the romantic. <laughs> but my point is, I was somewhat destined to have a kind of split personality, maybe, you know, because of these two genetic inheritances, you know. And um, and maybe the way they mixed together was pretty unusual. Um, so you are the integration of disparate parts. <laughs> I know. I think that sometimes I do. Um, I do. I actually do think a lot of people are influenced by things that are not spoken. You know, mm -hmm. this this is what I was discovering as, you know, maybe you and I were in Europe with some of the founders of this field at, at certain points. And I remember being challenged, you know, in, in these meetings to think about like, how did, you know, how did you end up in this kind of with this mindset? And I did actually think back, you know, my mom had very diverse friends when I was a kid, you know, her social circle were like maybe white artists that, you know, maybe from New York city or from wherever we were living. And yet she also had, you know, a lot of friends from Europe. And she, when I was really young, she was uh, very close to people she had been very involved with as a younger person who were mostly African-American and Caribbean-American. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all this different, like, kind of, you know, like I had, I remember growing up, I had um, special moments where like her friend, she had one friend who was a white woman who was Belgian, who was married to one of the Black composers in her or other circle, and she would come to visit and stay over, and we'd get to like decorate her room before she'd stay over, and all these different, you know. <laughs> I, I think like Riri Grist, who was like a famous black opera singer at the time, stayed at my house. Like these different adventures that you know, I didn't really think of them much when I was a kid, except it was exciting that we were going to have company staying over. Mm -hmm. But I think as an as I got older, also my mother had my sister and I going to this camp when we were like 12, 13, at least I was, where there were like Black Panthers who were counselors. There was like a woman that I idolized was a Cuban activist, <laughs> political, way left-leaning camp with very different people. I grew up, you know, in a suburb that was kind of white Jewish dominated. Mm -hmm. So my mother was like not speaking up about all her values, but she was making sure that my sister and I were having like a different experience than we would have if she wasn't in the mix, you know, and yeah. I definitely think that influenced me, you know, in terms of the trust level that, you know, I was describing before, like, you know, people really did feel like they could trust me. And I think it was because I just didn't grow up, I think, in a very homogeneous, you know, frame. Yeah, which which is, I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated by those two worlds and their integration. That's why, why, why you know, I'm, I'm just curious. When you think about the corporate world and the corporate leaders, I mean, sometimes, I mean, because I spend a lot of time in those environments too, and, and it's like you, that's not my inclination or my motivation in, inherently, right? But I wonder sometimes how 
business leaders could benefit from an artistic sensibility? I think that some of the opportunity there is to, you know, it's tricky because I think it has to do with how you reflect on your own experience in part. You know, like Mm -hmm. I do think a lot of business leaders have never really had the time to be self-reflective, you know, in the same way, honestly, that I didn't figure out, like, how did I end up in diversity until I was probably in my 50s and I've been doing it for a long time. So I think people, in you know, don't tend to pause, at least in the U.S. context, you know, and think through, you know, how did I end up here? Um, so I, I think it can be helpful to think about maybe their personal journey with them as a starting off place, you know, because they'll find the blind spots in the, in their own personal journey. And if you're trying to look at an organization, it's been amazing to me working with lots of different industries to see how many sort of family-like dynamics are in the mix in, in the top of a lot of companies, you know, meaning there's everybody brings, you know, I saw this with my father too in his company, you know, like people bring their history in the door. It doesn't stay outside, you know? So I think if you start to like get to know the person, you can help them learn how to make maybe different kinds of observations and use their intuition and trust their gut. And, you know, sometimes it is hard in a hierarchy, you know, one of the things that I remember from my years at Catalyst that, you know, I interviewed a lot of CEOs in those years for the Catalyst Award. And in those discussions across almost all the industries, and they were very different industries, the chairman would always express at some point their sense of isolation because people weren't telling them the truth in their, you know, they were, the hierarchy was getting in the way. And I think understanding that people in executive roles are actually pretty isolated from the truth and helping them sort of get past that is also one of the things that maybe as an artist where you don't, you're not affected or I wasn't affected by the hierarchy in the same way. You know, it got me in trouble at times. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not everybody wants you to tell the truth and, you know. No, that's true. That that, that, that is also very true. (laughs) It has a risk factor, you know, but Luckily, I think I had established enough credibility, um, you know, because I understood the business, frankly, you know, I had established enough credibility to get away with some of the riskier things that I had to say. Yeah. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Well, and it's, and maybe it's that mix of also respecting and valuing them that allows you then to send some messages or give some feedback that is not that great or people don't want to hear Plus, if you're not appearing as a threat where it's malicious, then people can receive it differently too. Right. And I think your point earlier about what was I, what was my motivation going to be, right? Like I wasn't threatening as a person, but I also wasn't like, why else would I be doing this if I didn't actually care, right? It was was just, (laughs) you know, like that was always kind of interesting. Like when I did feel like I was at risk, I would just say like, why would this executive think, you know, I'm doing this, you know, there's just like, I wasn't like trying to get anywhere. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying yeah. to up or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, so I think that actually was a valuable dimension, you know, as, uh, you know, like that insider outsider dynamic that you're describing. Yeah. I just, and I think it helps leaders to allow themselves, you know, to think 
maybe with you and go down a different path with you than they would normally, like to your yeah. point, you know, like I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I was probably the least linear person in most situations, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so, and sometimes that was really difficult, you know, I, I'm yeah. not going to say it wasn't because it is sure. a strain on people who, especially if your comfort zone is this maybe sometimes imaginary, logical, linear you know, universe. I mean, business leaders who are really talented, I think they figure out that's more like not really what's going on a lot of times. <laughs> but, you know, I think the impulse for certain industries is, you know, I want to make sense of the world. I want everything nailed down. I want to know that, you know, this is what's going to happen next. Life is just not like that, you know? And yeah. I think I think some people really can learn from people who don't view life like that. And what I'm really intrigued is also the, you know, the ability to reflect that you mentioned, right? I mean, as an artist, that's so much of the process, the artistic process. Right. And oftentimes business leaders are not in the habit of reflecting. And I mean, the more I study about reflection, the more I'm intrigued. And there is even some theory out there that says reflection is critical to change, right? Whether yeah. it's at the societal level or organizational or personal level. And so in a way, I mean, I can see what you're doing with art to be a real opening to a, a critical and increasingly important aspect, right? In business, even you know, when I think about AI coming in now and people actually needing to develop different skill sets, I oftentimes think about, you know, isn't that somehow on the artistic side of things? That makes sense to me. I mean, I do think people like to talk about themselves. To me, that's like a safe <laughs> way in. Because if you if you introduce the idea of self-reflection to in a lot of business contexts, people just like, they think you're going off you know, the deep end, you know what I mean? Like they yeah. I don't think they take that, that concept seriously initially anyway. Yeah. But if you ask a person to tell you, you know, about themselves, they are immediately in a reflective mode. Like I remember doing with you, you know, this journey where you're like tracing your life. I mean, once you get people into something personal, they, they actually often enjoy that, you know? Right. So I, I yeah. think that, that's a door into the reflection, you know, as a concept, it, it can be pretty hairy for people in, in business. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> right, right. But I think AI is probably something, you know, to some extent using the whatever change represents like a sort of anxiety could actually be helpful too, right? If mm -hmm. you have anxiety about AI and what's potentially ahead, maybe you get different kinds of listening, right? Like, so- yeah. I think it is a good idea to think about what is what's threatening to this individual from a business perspective and how might you leverage that to a stretch into a different way of thinking. Have you used art overtly in in a DEI context? I worked with um during COVID, you know, pandemic time, I made puppets that were diverse characters so all different skin tones and different identities in in my effort to make somewhat of a link between my two disparate worlds um and i um i did do voices for my puppets using insights that people had shared with me i did work with one client um it was a working parents effort and i talked through 
through the puppets, <laughs> talking to them about, you know, their 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 focus at that point was Black Lives Matter related and how to communicate with young children. And I was using the puppets um, and the little videos in that context, but it wasn't something I did a lot of, no, <laughs> Very, just a little bit. But I think that's fascinating. And, I, and I've always wondered about, you know, how art can be used better. I mean, you know, for learning, for engaging people around right. this reflective mission, which is at the core of DE&I work. I mean, not the only thing, but at the core, reflecting about the social structure we are part of, reflecting about these organizational norms. And I like that you differentiated that from unconscious bias, because I think there is a whole area beyond bias that, you know, we leave out of consideration oftentimes in DEI and and right. but 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 almost to 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 ignite that that reflective impulse through art or a creative way of using art perhaps could be a, a gateway and to open up something, right? The DEI world. Yeah. I mean, I also think um one thing that I think related to um, bias is that I think there are times when we focus on bias and almost like in that accusatory fashion you were kind of describing earlier. Yeah. You know, what I feel like maybe this was a very important piece of what I learned. A lot of times what happens in companies is that very early on in experiences, there's a lack of skill on the part of supervisors in bringing diversity into the organization in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what I think it's misconstrued as bias is really the experience. If you start off and you're not really um, getting the same access because some naive person isn't inviting you to lunch because you didn't seem like the kind of person they would normally eat lunch with or whatever it is, those really little unconscious, really not intentional things that happen early can have a huge impact. So the person's going through this whole journey in their career without any of that inside information. And then later, oh, get accused of, you know, bias in the senior executive level, you know, whatever. But the mistakes and the problems had happened like way earlier, you know. So I feel like we have to really understand the business patterns that exist in, in different levels in organizations. And I think because companies don't tend to like to invest in a high turnover population like your first level supervisor, you really miss a huge opportunity to get it right from the beginning. And you spend yeah. all this money bringing in all these diverse individuals that you're just churning out the door because yeah. you're not going to put up with this supervisor who doesn't really invite them, you know, out with everybody or whatever that, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a whole field to explore, right? That and and we reduce sometimes things to bias with that accusatory tone, and that doesn't help. Right. I mean, my work with that first level supervisor, people were very open. They're like, oh, I never thought about that. You're so right. Like, it wasn't like, oh, you're offending me. You're calling me, a, you know, oh, racist or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, it was really, it's like that attitude of being a teacher, I think, really goes a long way. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you do have to assume that people want to learn something in these efforts they're making you know and i just think we, we do get a lot of things wrong in the field unfortunately you know because i think it's a passion 
you know, to understand like the intellectual process involved or the intellectual analysis without seeing like really the down and dirty, what's really going on, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's just um, where I think, you know, I, I landed and, and, you know, so far I'm still working. <laughs> I had to focus. <laughs> well, that's great. And it's <laughs> great. And, and, you know, and there's plenty of work to do in this field, of course. And, and plenty of innovation to give, you know, which is why I, you know, I, I know we're, you know, almost out of time, but I'm, I'm, I end usually these conversations with a simple question from all your experience. And it's maybe unfair given the two sides and, you know, but from all your experience, what, what, are, what are one or two actionable insights that you feel can benefit whoever is listening, whether they are in the field of DEI or inclusive leadership or an artist? You know, really pay attention, you know, listen and pay attention. And actually, the things that I've learned about, you know, how much you bring your own framing to every interaction, it's sort of an astounding reality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we are seeing things through a, such a specific lens. And I have to say, your my work with you has helped me so much in that regard. I mean, oh. from the beginning, honestly, you know, in seeing just like how incredibly American I would feel when I would go on some, you know, international meeting and I'd be like, oh my God, like every word out of my mouth is all about like how an American feels about themselves as an individual. And yeah. it's like seeing, being very honestly self-reflective, your, you know, your own lens is a huge piece of what is required. And then just listening across that difference with this you know, minimizing that judgment, minimizing, you know, your own projection of what you would be in that situation. You know, it's really removing yourself to some extent as much as you can. Yeah. You know, those were things I learned. I mean, obviously I'm obsessed with paying attention to the business patterns and, you know, really not accepting what is handed off in a piece of paper about, you know, the, the, for example, the hierarchy, you know, there's lots of influencers throughout organizations at all levels, and you have to find those people if you're trying to make a change. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really about reflecting deeper, pay attention to the deeper layers, right? And, and right. not take the surface for, for what it is. Yeah. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.